Almighty and merciful Father, you've built your church on the prophets, on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. With Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us when we commit the idolatry of refusing to move when you call us to move, refusing to change when your spirit compels us to change. Forgive us for trying to force you into the narrow expectations of our own demands. Lord, enable us to move forward as we follow your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, today's reading from the book of Acts records the martyrdom, the first martyrdom in the Christian church. Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew who, because of a church crisis, is dragged from the periphery of the church right smack into the middle of controversy. Stephen was one of those unlucky people elected to serve as a deacon. This is how it happened. As the early church, early Christian communities struggled to survive, a case of apparent prejudice arose because the community made it a habit to take care of the poor widows in their midst. Someone began to make an accusation that the Hebrew-speaking widows, who were seen as more Jewish, were getting better treatment than the Greek-speaking widows. They're all Jewish, but some speak one language and some speak another. Somehow, it seems that when the meals are distributed, somebody is favoring the Hebrew speakers over the Greek speakers. The apostles, who are up to their, already up to their ears in speaking engagements and church administration, decide to create a new office the office of deacon. Now the word deacon in the Greek actually sounds more noble than it really is. It really means table waiter. It's a common word used for a slave who managed the mundane aspects of the household, fixing dinner, setting the table, washing dishes, and so on. So the term deacon is borrowed by the church to describe this important work of service to the Christian community. They used a household word because the church is a family. And so the deacons helped to distribute food and money to the poor and needy among them. Stephen was one of those seven chosen, all who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Not just business sense or common sense, but the deacon was required to be spiritually and theologically fit to serve this important task without prejudice, someone who is full of grace and full of power. But Stephen's gifts seem larger than the task of making sack lunches for the widows, because as he goes about the work of deaconing, he finds himself inadvertently thrust into the middle of controversy. One writer suggests, tongue-in-cheek, that if Stephen had been a better deacon, he wouldn't have gotten himself into trouble. 
But somehow he finds himself preaching and healing, and then finally charged with heresy. Now, you can't get charged with heresy for ladling soup or changing light bulbs. So Stephen is obviously pushing beyond the normal parameters of the task. Somehow, Deacon Stephen finds himself embroiled in a dispute with the religious leaders. And because of his astute theology, they make several accusations against him. They say, this man speaks incessantly against this holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. He is blaspheming God and Moses. And from the perspective of the religious leader, their leaders, there is really no worse offense because there are three pillars of Jewish piety, the law, the land, and the temple. These are the three things that identify them as the people of God, for they were seen as unique gifts, gifts that no one else had, and they must be preserved at every cost. And Stephen is perceived as speaking against all three. The religious orthodoxy of these spiritual leaders in Jerusalem had degenerated into an idolatry of place, and an idolatry of law. Even good gifts of God can be distorted into idols. In fact, that's precisely what an idol is, a gift that comes from God that is used or deemed in an appropriate manner. The religious leaders had come to see the God of Israel as only the God of Israel and no one else. They'd lost touch with the truth that God was the creator of the entire world, and therefore he was also the God of the Gentile. They felt as if God, they had God exclusively to themselves, confined somehow within the borders of Israel, boxed into the walls of the temple in Jerusalem, bound to the law of Moses. And they revered the law so much that God was eventually seen as a kind of cosmic scorekeeper who delights in punishing those who deviate from his strict code. It was unthinkable to the religious leaders of the day that God could be at work anywhere else in the world with anyone else but good Jewish law keepers. And to suggest otherwise was heresy. The story of Stephen is a watershed for the book of Acts because it's here that we see the religious leader's opposition to the church is sealed in blood. The Romans had taken away from the Jewish religious authorities the privilege of capital punishment with one exception, blasphemy against the temple. And so the caretakers of religious orthodoxy in Jerusalem have charged Stephen with blasphemy against the holy place, and so his fate is sealed. One of the dangers of what we call religious orthodoxy is the temptation in the name of God, in the name of truth, to resist change. In the name of conservative theology, we refuse to move forward when God calls us to move. Too often it's assumed that we have received a set of static eternal truths from God 
And if God doesn't change, then it's our job to not change. It's our job to preserve those truths against modification at all costs. The faith is perceived as a repository of static doctrine, and religious leaders serve as curators of a museum of petrified orthodoxy. As such, any shift of orientation, any change of method, can be seen as a threat to the very fabric of orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton once noted critically that all conservatism is based on the notion that if you leave a thing alone, you leave it as it is. But this is not so. If you leave a white fence alone, it will soon become a gray fence and then a black fence. You must always be painting it if you particularly want it to be white. That is, you must always be having a revolution of truth. Because Stephen refuses to see God in terms of petrified truth, he's accused by the religious status quo as being a heretic, a dangerous religious innovator. More precisely, Stephen has been accused of attacking and deriding the, great, the three great pillars of the faith, the law, the land, and the temple. Now Stephen's sermon is the longest sermon recorded in the New Testament. You just got the short version. This is a book that is already at the maximum length for a parchment scroll. It would have filled up an entire scroll on both sides. And yet Stephen's ideas cover three whole chapters. And they become theologically pivotal for the identity of the church a young man named Saul of Tarsus will begin to repeat them in just a matter of decades. In a nutshell, what Stephen is suggesting in his sermon is that the religious leaders have completely misunderstood their own scriptures. They had missed the point that God was Lord over the entire universe, not just over the nation of Israel that he was the God of all creation, not simply the giver of the law. This was a God who could not be limited to the confines of the temple, who could not be limited to the borders of Israel. And while they took great comfort in thinking of God as their own private possession, Stephen challenges them that their God is too small. They'd come to think that God was at their disposal like hot and cold running water. And yet Jesus had promised that there was a day when the temple would be discarded. A day would be coming when God would not be worshipped in a specific geographic location, but instead he would be worshipped in spirit and in truth wherever his people gather. Stephen portrays a God who refuses to be tied down a God who's on the move. And true people of God are people who refuse to settle down and become attached to one idea, to one parcel of land, or loyal to one nation, but people who, like their God, are concerned about the whole of creation and every creature within it. In the name of preserving orthodoxy, the pious often try to limit God's power to the categories that bring comfort to them and assure them that God is completely within our grasp. 
We find false comfort in the idea that God is limited to our group, that he cares more about us than someone else. We find comfort in the notion that the truth about God is the sole possession of our denomination, or that God cares more deeply about one country than another. Idolatry, the idolatry that, that Stephen challenges in the religious leaders, is alive and well in the church today. Notice how Stephen challenges the idea by referring to Scripture, by retelling the story of Israel. Not a story of an exclusive club of people who have sole possession of God, but by speaking of God who is constantly challenging his people to think outside the box because this is a God who acts outside the box. Stephen speaks of a God who refuses to stand still Protectors of orthodoxy want God to sit motionless for a still-life portrait so that we can get God nailed. They want God to lie unconscious for a theological dissection because our comfort lies in having God figured out, in having a predictable religion. But Stephen shows by retelling the story of Israel that God has never been this kind of God. He has never been a God who is limited to one people or one place. God, Stephen says, revealed himself to the nomadic patriarch Abraham. Where did he do it? Not in Israel, but while Abraham was still in the land of Mesopotamia. And that same God calls his people to be resident aliens, living as pilgrims who follow a nomadic God whose loyalties lie somewhere else. When Joseph is sold into slavery, Stephen says, he reminds us that even in that foreign land, God was with him. And eventually, all the patriarchs come and live in Egypt, outside of the land of Israel, and God continues to bless them. Moses, he says, was a servant of God, even though Moses never personally entered the Holy Land. Moses found himself living as a resident alien in the land of Midian, and yet God revealed himself to Moses in that heathen land, not in Israel, but in a pagan country. God gave his law to Moses where? On Mount Sinai, hundreds of miles away from Israel. And yet God declared to Moses that he was standing on holy ground. God was present wherever his people were present. And the people of God spent as much time out of the land as they did in it. And yet God remained faithful to them as a wandering God, as a God who could not be tied down and not simply as a local deity. The mobile form of the tabernacle was intentional because it was a better representation of the kind of God that they followed because it represented a God who pushed out into the wilderness, out into uncharted territory. Stephen quotes the psalmist, quotes the scriptures as saying, the most high God does not live in houses made with human hands, for heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house can you pretend to construct for a God such as myself? And then Stephen, stacks, uh, Stephen wraps up his sermon with the stinging words 
that implied that the Jewish religious authorities were as guilty of idolatry as their pagan neighbors. You have uncircumcised hearts. Even though you bear the physical sign of God's covenant, inside you're still unbelievers. Just as the other religions had reduced God to statues of stone and wood, the Jewish authorities had reduced God to the confines of the, of the Jewish temple and limited them to the boundaries of their own legalistic theology. And yet the disciple of Jesus are called to look away from the temple, to look beyond the confines of Israel, to proclaim a gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Imagine the impact that Christians might have in the conflict of the Middle East if we could finally learn to live and proclaim as if God does not prefer one piece of land or one people, but is concerned about the whole of creation. Most of us like to refer to ourselves in static terms when we think about our Christianity. We like to use the language of being saved or born again. But you have to remember that the primary language of the New Testament, the term repeated again and again, is not a static term. It's the word disciple, someone who follows. We are first and foremost described not in terms of status, but in terms of our activity. Followers of Jesus Christ, people who follow a God who refuses to sit still. And so to be a follower, to be a disciple, is to be active. It's to be on a pilgrimage. Because the God of Israel is a God who is not restricted to one place. His people are pilgrims, resident aliens in whatever culture they find themselves, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now we have to be careful that we not use this language to underscore a form of escapism, as if we only live here on earth a short time and then we fly away to heaven for all eternity. The idea here, as a resident alien, is that we live in the cultures of the world, and yet our loyalty comes from somewhere else. The term resident alien is borrowed from, from ancient culture. It was used to refer to the citizens of Rome who were living out in the far reaches of the empire, places where the empire had not fully established itself, and yet they stood as representatives of that kingdom. And while they would live their entire lives and die in a foreign culture, in fact, they would participate in the life of that culture. Nevertheless, their primary values came from their loyalty to Rome. This implies that while we live in a particular context, in a particular culture, we're never to think about that context as ultimate. We should never get too comfortable in any situation in any tradition, in any country, because we always have a deeper and more profound commitment to the kingdom of God. God's kingdom then is not dependent upon the success of any nation, not even the United States of America. God's moral law 
is not dependent on our ability to pass laws in the American judicial system. Christ's rule is not dependent upon the election of any one per person or of any particular political party having success. We American Christians seem to expend a lot of energy trying to maintain the status quo of polite society. But passing laws to sustain certain traditions of the past will not stem the tide of immorality. It will not stem the tide of selfishness that exists even within the church. For example, and I know I'm on thin ice here, I want to suggest to you that passing laws to prohibit gay marriage is not the key to preserving Christian marriage. The only thing that will preserve Christian marriage is if Christians themselves will commit to being faithful to the covenant of marriage. Christian orthodoxy is not something that we're called to shelter and preserve as curators of a museum longing for the return of some past golden age. Christian orthodoxy is something we live. Christian orthodoxy is not something that we impose on others outside the church by passing laws. Christian orthodoxy is a calling to live as a resident alien within the world whose values come from God's kingdom. People who follow a God who's always moving forward. I believe that American Christians, contemporary Christians, have developed a martyr complex in our society simply because as we try to sit still and preserve things as we remember them, the culture around us continues to change and this makes us uncomfortable. And we feel that our way of life is being threatened. But the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us not to stand against change, but to keep step with God's spirit, who's always on the move. The Church of Jesus Christ should be the most radical community on the face of the earth. Rather, and rather than insist that the culture live up to our standards, we should live in such a way that it will challenge the status quo around us. Our witness is less about what we say and even more, even less about what we impose. Our witness is more about how we live our theology insisting that Jesus is Lord over all creation and not just one nation, that God cares for all his creatures and not just one special group. And like Stephen, threatening the status quo by the way we live the gospel might in fact lead to real martyrdom and not just the perception of it. Consider the life of, of John Myrick Daniels, a 26-year-old seminarian in 1969 who, watching Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on television, calling for volunteers to come to Selma, Alabama to help secure the right of blacks to vote. John's good deed landed him promptly in jail. And just moments after his release, John found himself standing between a young black girl named Ruby Sales and a man with a rifle. The man fired his rifle, and John Daniels was dead. Consider 
Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. He began his ministry as a priest to the elite, to the wealthy landowners and generals of the country. But soon he heard the call of the poor, people who had been denied a livable wage by the greed of the Western world. And Romero became the voice of these oppressed people. And the result was that he made many powerful enemies. As he stood one day at the altar celebrating a funeral mass for a woman in his church, he was shot dead by a government soldier. And of course, you all know what happens to Stephen. After his sermon, the religious authorities drag him out onto the street and stone him to death under the watchful eye of a young zealot named Saul of Tarsus. The crime is challenging the status quo by suggesting that God is bigger than our categories, larger than our comfort zones, that he can't be nailed down to one nation or one system, and that, in fact, his grace and justice are available to everyone without discrimination. The challenge to us 2,000 years later is to live as resident aliens, citizens whose loyalty belongs to another kingdom, taking marching orders from God, a God who refuses to be tied down. Some time ago, I read a journal article that described the frustration of a new pastor at a church that had a long history. The pastor couldn't understand why he was unable to motivate his people to get involved with the task of ministry in their community. Until one day, in a conversation with one of the elders, he learned the reason. The elder said, Pastor, we come to church to be prepared to die, but you keep trying to teach us how to live. What is the church? Is it a spiritual elephant's graveyard where we all come for final assurance and comfort before we shuffle off this mortal coil? Or is it more than that? This morning I want you to consider the possibility that the church is not simply a place to die, but a place to learn how to live, where we learn to be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ not just keepers of the Museum of Orthodoxy, but people on the move, people who are willing to follow God wherever he wants to lead us. This morning, after we share communion, I want to close our service in an unusual way because today's text calls us for an outward focus in our mission as a church. I want you all to join me outside for the prayers of the people. I want to demonstrate our commitment to mobility as a church by actually moving and our commitment to looking beyond ourselves by moving outside the comfortable walls of, well, this fellowship hall 
I know it's a strange request, but I'd like to ask you to take a short pilgrimage with me out, out into the uh, courtyard as a sign of our willingness to follow God on a greater pilgrimage. So if you would, as we're singing the closing hymn, uh, simply follow me out the door. Uh, we'll leave the door open for those who don't want to go all the way outside. Um, join me outdoors as we commit ourselves in prayer to serve the community and the world around us. Amen.